Well, over the last number of weeks, uh, Matt's been taking us through um, Jesus' final major teaching in the book of Matthew. And just to set where we are, he has been, um, he's just finished his last public teaching. And as he's left Jerusalem, he declares to his disciples who are looking at the temple building, and he says to them, you see all these? Truly I say to you, there is not one left here. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He looks at this incredible temple, city, structure, what everybody held dear and as really permanent, and says, it's coming down. And so the disciples ask him, they sit, they sit across from the city looking over at it, and the disciples ask him, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then Jesus goes on to describe the day of the Lord, the signs of his coming, um, warnings, judgment, things like that. But he says, when they want to know when will this be, he says, of the day and of the hour, no one knows. But he does go on to say it will come in parables leading up to this. It will come in an instant, like a thief in the night. He goes on also to say that there will be a delay. So just like we have seen, it's been quite a delay. Um, there will be a delay. And he calls on us. In the, in last week, when Matt taught us on the parable of the ten virgins, he taught that... Um, he taught us that there will be this delay, but we must be prepared. We must get right with the Lord now. Remember, at the end of that parable, um, the, uh, the bridegroom came, the doors were shut, and those who knew the Lord were welcomed in. But for those that were still outside and were unprepared, he said to them um, that he did not know them. So there's a warning to be ready. So today we're going to continue with this, um, with this section of Jesus' teaching. And a lot of the same themes are there. He's coming. It will be delayed. We must be ready. But there is a different emphasis this time. And so our text today is Matthew 25, 14 through 30, um, in which we'll see these similar themes. So let me read that, and then we'll pray and get started. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here... I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also to he who had the two talents, he came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to at least have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So, take the talent from him, give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be, for to everyone who has will be will more be given, 
and he, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our Lord. We're your people. Please speak to us today. Direct us. Let us know your will. Father, as we worship you today, will you comfort those who need to be comforted, encourage those who need to be encouraged, and discipline those who need to be disciplined? We do long to give you glory in our worship and in our lives all week long. So, Father, please use this time to prepare us for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, each one of us has, what is it, 168 hours each week? Think about what we do each week, what you each do each week. Some of us are out there, you know, in the workforce, designing, serving, organizing, those sorts of things, a lot of time spent there. Some of us are more focused on the home, beautifying, cultivating, educating, training. Um, There's certain things that we do that we love to do that we can't, you know, that we look forward to doing, like hobbies or traveling or meeting with people. There's things that we don't like doing that we kind of have to do, right? I don't know, ta- filing taxes, <laughs> budgeting, things like that. Those are the things that kind of bug me, taking out the trash. Um, but there are all these things that we do. There's things that we do that we don't want to do. There's things that we don't want to do that we do. There's things that we ought to do that we don't get around to. There's things that we know that we shouldn't do, and yet we still do. But for each of these things, think about whatever's coming into your mind, what motivates you to do that thing? What motivates you to not do that thing or to avoid that thing or procrastinate or whatever your bent is? God in his wisdom has given various ways to motivate us to do the things that he's called us to do. And in this parable, the Lord teaches his followers that he will be away for an extended period of time and he will surely return. But the emphasis in this parable is not so much just being prepared, but what are we to be about while he's gone? What should we be doing while we wait for his return? And he gives us some motivation uh, in that direction. So, similar to last week's parable, there's the picture, and then there's a point. So first we'll just read what the scripture says, and then we'll consider what it says to us. So, starting in verse 14, it says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So, before we go on any further, just like Matt explained, sort of the traditions around the, uh, the wedding and how that led up to the parable, I want to consider the idea that the New Testament has, it has many, many um, references to masters and servants, or really it's the same word for masters and slaves. This is a fact of how the society in first century uh, Rome, first century Roman society, or, and in Israel, um, was organized. There were households that included, you know, husbands and wives and children and parents and that sort of thing, but also many included slaves or servants in the house. And the word that it uses here, and in most of these places in the New Testament where it says, this servant did this, that servant did, said that, the centurion said, Lord, come and heal my servant. It's the same word in the New Testament that really just means slave. It's one word. Um, and it's, it shows up, I looked it up, 127 times in the New Testament. So this is part of the culture. This is something that's very easily understood by the people living in it. Many of the times that it's used, it's just part of the narrative, like the centurion and his servant. Sometimes, you know, Jesus uses it in his parables quite a bit. There's a bunch of places in the New Testament letters that explain, masters, these are your duties toward your slaves, toward your servants. And there's a lot, similarly, there's the places where it says slaves, these are your responsibilities toward your master, toward your household. But most importantly, Christians are referred to as slaves of God, slaves of Christ, servants. 
And in the ESV, and in most of our translations, it does say servant. And in fact, it's, such a, it's a difficult thing to translate because if we say slave, it conjures up these ideas in our mind that aren't necessarily what was there. And it's such a complicated thing, or at least a difficult thing, that if you read in your preface of the ESV, they go into lengthy detail about why they're choosing to translate this way and that way. Because in fact, the word is the word for slave but it's a little bit different in that time. Now, my goal is not to go into all of those details, but one thing that's been helpful for me in the last year is, um, was reading, you know, John MacArthur wrote a book about this where he just goes into understanding what this means for Christians. And before we get into the parable, just to sort of set the scene, um, there were five things that he pointed out that I thought were helpful where he compares how the Bible represents us as Christians, how we, our Christian life compares to that of a servant or as a slave. And so let me just rehearse those briefly, and we'll get into the actual parable. So the first thing, a Christian, just like a first century slave, belongs exclusively to his or her master. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And in Titus um, 2, 14, it speaks of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, right? We're described as a possession, as the people of Jesus. The second thing is um, a Christian, like a first century slave, um, owes complete submission to his master. He's available um, to do the will of his or her master in every way. And 1 John 2, 3 is an example of this. It says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Or Romans 12.1, which is very familiar to us, we are called to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. So you can see that we are called to be devoted. The third thing, similarly, is a singular devotion um, to the master. A Christian, like a first century slave, has one master, and it's his or her job to please the master. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or, in, or absent, to be pleasing to him, and you can probably think of these other verses where we're told to be devoted to Christ, to please him, to please him over everyone else. So exclusive ownership, complete submission, singular devotion. The fourth one is a total dependence. Have you considered this? So in an ancient household, everyone in the house was dependent on the head of the household, right, for provision, for where to sleep, what to eat, and that sort of thing. Jesus himself said to us, do not be anxious about anything, about what you will eat or drink or wear, because your father in heaven knows that you need them. Or Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Have you considered, I mean, we all know that we are dependent on God, but this is another parallel that's drawn out, which is, I think, helpful to understand this parable. And finally, the fifth thing is personal accountability. Each of us, each Christian, just like each first century slave, was accountable to his master and his master only. It's his master's evaluation of him only that matters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any court, any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord that judges me, right? So these are some considerations, and these are clear teachings about Christians, but they, and they parallel what people would have understood in that culture about slaves um, or servants, devotion to their masters. And MacArthur summarizes like this. He says, Jesus also used slave language to define the reality of what it means to follow him. Discipleship, like slavery, entails a life of total self-denial, 
a humble disposition toward others, a wholehearted devotion to the master alone, a willingness to obey his commands in everything, an eagerness to serve him even in his absence, and a motivation that comes from knowing that he is well pleased. Though they were once the slaves of sin, Christ's followers receive spiritual freedom and rest for their souls through um, their saving relationship with him. And just one more, one more line. Against the historical backdrop of slavery, the Lord's call to self-sacrifice becomes that much more vivid. A slave's life was one of complete surrender, submission, and service to the master, and the people of Jesus' day would have immediately recognized the parallel. Christ's invitation to follow him was an invitation to that same kind of life. And I think we all recognize that, but when we put on the, the when we are, we're pretty comfortable with, like, I'm a servant of Christ, but when you consider that word is really the same word for the slave of Christ, it kind of makes me reevaluate who am I, really, and who am I serving? So it would be terrifying to be in this position with a cruel master, right? But consider the Lord that we have. He's faithful. He's gracious. He never fails. And of course, he's more than that. The Bible talks about many metaphors besides just that relationship. We are his um, friends, Jesus says to his disciples. We are his children whom he loves. We are his beloved. Almost the church is called the bride of Christ. So there's many of these different metaphors, but it's really helpful to understand that our devotion to Christ is total. So with that, on with the parable. So back in verse 14, it says, it'll, it'll be like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to one he gave two talents, and to, and to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. So the master of the house is going on a long trip. He's wealthy. When we talk about talents, we're talking about, like a talent is probably like, well, they say it's like 20 years of wages or something. So think hundreds of thousands or like millions of dollars. This is a substantial sum that he's giving to these servants. And to the one he gives five, to one he gives two, and to one he gives one, each according to their own ability, right? He recognizes the ability of each, and he has responsibilities for each one of them. Now, it doesn't say here exactly his exact directions on what to do. There is a similar parable in Luke 19 where he does tell him to, like, earn a profit on his, on his resources. But he directs them to use these things. So it says, uh, yeah, in Luke 19, it says they should engage in business until he comes, that sort of thing. So they have a job. Okay. So what goes on, what happens next? Verse 16, it says, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five more. Or in other translations, it says immediately he went and traded or did business. And so this isn't necessarily like playing the stock market or something, but he took these resources, this capital, and he, with creativity, with eagerness, with alacrity, he went off and did his work. Whatever he could do, whatever he could conceive of to make a return on the master's resources. And in the end, he doubled his master's money. Verse 17 says, and so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So similarly, the one with the two talents, the lesser ability apparently, but also with the lesser resources, he went and he made a profit with his resources. Same thing. Verse 18, but... He who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. So here's the contrast. These first two servants took the resources they had, and they got to work. It's unclear when the master's returning, but either way, they just got to business so that when he returned, they could show off this return on his, um, on his trust, on his resources. They were singularly devoted. They were focused on pleasing him. The third servant took the money and buried it. Right? The instructions were not, 
take your money and just make sure I've got one when I get back. It wasn't preserve it. Instructions are to make a profit on the resources that I've given you to have a return on it. He set it aside, he buried it, he did nothing for his master. He didn't value his master's resources, he didn't value his master's goals, <clears throat> he didn't do his job, and he didn't accomplish his master's work. So, verse 19, settling the accounts. So in verse 19 it says, Now after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled accounts with them. So now the delay is over, the master comes back, presumably unannounced, I don't know, um, but the master comes back, and the first servant, the one who, um, oh, well, I should continue reading in verse 20, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents? Here, I made five talents more. And so the one who was immediately working, you can almost picture him, if he's a little bit spunky, he might say, well, here's your five talents, and I got five talents more. You know, kind of like, you know, if you've been making your mother's, the kid's making the Mother's Day card for mom, and I've been working on it all day, and here it is, right? Or if you've been working on a project, and you're able to tell your parents, look, at, I got an A on this project that I've been working so hard for. The work was put in, and it's almost like you couldn't, couldn't wait. It's like, I wonder, I hope the master's coming back today. I hope the master's coming back today, each day, because he'll see what I have accomplished with the resources um, that he gave me. Um... And so there's satisfaction in not only a job well done, but on pleasing the one that he loves and he respects. And so then in verse 21, the master replies, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, what blessed words, right? He, he recognizes his servant for doing exactly what he was supposed to do. Again, it's not just the work that's being done, but it's the heart with which he did it. And he is recognized as a good and faithful servant. And so what's his reward in this case? His reward is really twofold, if you look at it. First of all, he's given more responsibility. You were faithful over a little. And by a little, he means like, I don't know, two, three million dollars. You were faithful over that. Now I'm going to give you something real to manage. But whatever it is, he is getting additional responsibility. Now, to some of us, that might not sound like, you know, a great reward. But if you think about it, well, let me go on to the second part. The second thing is that he says, um, well, he's honored in the sight of his master. But the second reward is this, is he says, enter into the joy of your master, right? It's not just the additional responsibility, but just the commendation of the one that you honor, the one that you respect, the one you trust, um, and to know that you've done a good job. But the, these two rewards are kind of the similar because... Part of the joy of the servant is going about, the, going about the master's business. I mean, is there not joy in taking whatever responsibility you have seriously, and especially if you're doing it for someone that you love, to, to get it done, and you're, you're doing something for that person, um, you know, furthering his or her goals, furthering his or her um, vision, desire, and so there's joy in working with that person. And so now, not only did he have the joy of doing the work, he has the joy of entering into his master's joy with additional responsibility, with more resources, with which he can pursue with his master even more. You know what I mean? So that's his, that's his reward. And so, verse 22. Also, he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here, I've made two talents more. Same story, just a second servant and two talents. Exactly the same thing. And the master's response is identical. His master responds with, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I, set you, um, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
same reward, same joy. So, the third servant, verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So, so you can imagine if there's the announcement, the master is coming. If the first two servants were kind of excited, like, I can't wait till he, see, he can see what I can do. The third one might have got that pit in your stomach. I mean, have you had that pit in your stomach when, you know, you, you had like two or three weeks to get your project done and you've waited till the last minute for whatever reason, right? Or if, I don't know if it's just me. It happens. And the announcement comes like, it's coming. Now is the time. And so I guess first he's got to look up the treasure map. I mean, I don't know where you bury something, right? But he's got to find the thing. It's like, all right, I'll find the thing. At least I'll, at least I'll return that to him. And then he's got to say, well, what am I going to say? I mean, if I just say, here's your talent, I know that's not going to go over well. And so um, he starts thinking about, well, I got to say something. I mean, you know, I mean, I know this is true for me at work. If I haven't quite done my job and I know I'm going to look a little bit like a, like a fool, it's like, well, I'll come up with a little story to sort of ease them in, right? Make me look a little bit better and make the request look a little bit more kind of silly. And I think that's what's going on here. So he steps forward and he says, before he even shows him the talent, says what he's got, master, I know you're a hard man. Um, Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And so I, I buried your talent and hid it. Here, here's what's yours. Pat me on the back. I'm not sure what he expected at that point. Um, and so what's the master's response? The master's response is, in verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Right, so he is not being commended at all. He says, um, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I, uh, gather where I scattered no seed. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have at least received some interest. So he sees right through this really feeble excuse. It's not just a bad excuse, though, either. It's, I mean, first of all, it's kind of a slander or a malignment of the, of the master's character. Is the master a hard man? By, by a hard man, meaning like an exacting man, someone who demands performance. Not only that, but demands performance and doesn't care about his servants. And not only that, someone who demands, almost like he's characterizing this pharaoh in Egypt who said, slaves, make bricks without straw. You know, that kind of a guy. And obviously, since the Lord here is supposed to be a picture of our Lord Jesus, that is a mischaracter, I mean, it's a blasphemous mischaracterization of the master. So the master, you know, all that matters is what the master knows to be true and what the master sees. And the master doesn't, doesn't say like, no, you got me all wrong. You don't have to be afraid. Let's work this out. Right? He sees this as the excuse that it is. And so in, in, in this, we see two things. One is that he doesn't know the master. Or, I mean, if he does know the master, maybe have you ever spun up somebody's character in your own mind? It's like he kind of becomes the person that you make him up to be. So maybe he's self-deceived about who the master is. Maybe he's just making something up. So there's, there's that aspect. But also, what was his behavior while the master was gone? He did nothing. He did the bare minimum. In fact, he didn't really do the bare minimum. The master said the bare minimum would be at least, at least you could put it in the bank, right? Make some interest. Do something. I mean, we don't demand a lot of creativity. You're the one talent guy anyway, right? I mean, do something with it. But he didn't even do that. He proved that he didn't care about his master's business. He didn't care about his master's values. He didn't care about his master's resources. He had no love for the master. He did not do his job as the servant in the house. 
So the master's response is, you wicked and slothful servant. Now, this might sound harsh to our ears, right? Now, I mean, for, to, be, to be drastically punished, to be kicked out, to be thrown out, worse than that, we'll see, for being lazy, right? Is that something, I mean, do we consider laziness or slothfulness to be something that's really of a real moral concern? I mean, it's one thing to, like, not get your job done. Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, first recall, there's this real comparison between you good and faithful servant contrasted with you wicked and slothful servant. The good servant is the one who's faithful, who has his master's interests at heart. The, the, uh, the, the wicked servant, I mean, he's wicked because he mischaracterizes the master, but his wickedness is shown in his total disregard for his master's business, for his master's resources, for his master's um, goals, his vision. And it's a real problem. The servant's job is to be useful and to be fruitful, to be profitable, and to help and benefit his master. And so one, the, the two servants were faithful and diligent, eager, willing to do the work. Um, the other servant is rebuked for being unfaithful, rebellious, and just not on the same team. And so the reckoning in verse 28. So what is so what happens? First of all, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not even what he has will be taken away. It's hard for me to read that one. But does that sound familiar? This is exactly what Jesus said back in Matthew 13 when he was discussing parables. When he said, like, basically, the disciples said, why do you speak in parables? And he said, it's, it's, it's this way of communicating grace to my disciples by giving you ears to hear, and it's a way of holding back my grace from those who are rebellious, right? It's got this dual purpose, and he says, to the one who has these ears to hear, more grace will be given. Similarly, in this case, those, the, those servants who took his resources and applied them, to them more will be given. And then finally, and finally, with regard to, you know, again, the harshness or that, that sort of thing, this is... Um, there is a real moral good for not just hard work, but heartfelt productivity. We are called to love one another. We're called to love each, each other as our, self, our own self. Um, and we do that by you know, doing things to each other, by, by engaging in this kind of work. It's um, similar to how in Ephesians 4.28 it says um, to the thief, Steal no longer, but labor, to be, labor in honest work so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. And so in the same way, like the sin of laziness, the sin of sloth, the sin of, is really a sin of sinful sort of self-satisfaction, self-gratification, just thinking of ourselves and not using these resources that the Lord gives us to, to serve one another. Um, in the end, the condemnation on this final servant is is just in the eyes of the master. And one, James, one uh, comment on this verse that I got from James Boyce, he says, for the servant, to have done nothing is proof that we do not love Jesus Christ. We do not belong to him, and we have no share in his kingdom. So it's not like an off-the-handle judgment um, by, a, uh, you know, by a cruel master. It's not one slave misunderstanding what he should have been doing. Um, what it is, it's an exposure of the servant's heart. It shows the some servants, their heart was 
devoted to the master, and this other servant, his heart was not. So that's the picture. And now what's the point? The point. And so there's a few, I have um, three points, but there's kind of some sub points. So stay with me. So first of all, the point of this, just like the other ones, is that the master, the Lord Jesus, is away for a long time, right? Jesus has been teaching his disciples, don't expect the kingdom to come like right now. It's going to be delayed. And so that's, that's very clear. Um, it's true that there is, in a real sense, the Lord is with us now. Jesus himself said, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? But there's a sense in which he is not here. He is with us now through the Holy Spirit, but his body is like he is not walking around with us now, not yet. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but there is a day when he is coming. So he is delayed, but he is coming. Why does he wait so long? Well, we can't really know the mind of God. However, in 2 Peter, um, when this question comes up, what's with the delay of his coming? 2 Peter 3, 9 says, he is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, right? Are you not glad that he's waited about 2,000 years, right? I'm glad that he waited for me. I'm glad that he's waited for my family. I'm glad that he's waited for all of us. Um, and so we don't understand. We eagerly look forward to his, to his return, and we trust him in his timing. So that's the first thing, is that, um, that he's away for a long time, and so we already knew that from the other parables. But the second is, the master has work for his servants to do, right? That's the main distinguishing part of this par uh, parable here. Just as the master trusted servants with resources when he was away, the Lord has instructed us, his servants, with resources, and he's given us a mission. Go, make disciples of all the nations, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, Matthew 28. Um, and so what is this work? Like, what are these resources that he's given us? How can we do it? And this is where I got the three kind of subpoints. But how do we know what is the business um, that we're supposed to be about while he's away? So the first thing is, is that we have to know the master. We got to come to know the master. If we don't know the master yet, first of all, we're not his servants, right? But second of all, knowing the master is key for us to be able to, <laughs> to start serving him. There is only one way to get to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's to come to him in faith. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created each one of us, expects us as his image to be perfect as he himself is perfect. That's what Jesus said. And of course, none of us do that. In fact, it's worse than I'm not perfect. It's, it's I am rebellious. I am that lazy and wicked servant apart from Christ. And so we get to know the master when, um, well, well, we get to know the master when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one, like we read previously in uh, 1 uh, uh, Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And how, is, how did Jesus Christ buy us? And with what price did he buy us with? He bought us while he was on that cross. The wrath of God poured out on him instead of me. And it was this payment made with his own blood, right? So he has purchased each one of us. We are his people when we trust in him, to take away our sins, to, to trust in him to absorb that wrath of God deserved for us, and we trust in him to be the only way that we get to be called a good and faithful servant. And so, like, you know, and so we believe in him, we trust in him, we depend on him, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, which means I'm the servant, 
and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And like a slave or like a bond servant, we place ourselves into his service, following the one who gave himself for us. And so when we know him, we are not going to be deceived into thinking he's a hard and cruel master. Is that not how people see God sometimes? Who is God to tell me to do this? I can't do that. If, there's, if that's a God, I'm not going to believe in that God. Those are the words of somebody who doesn't know our good and gracious master. And so we get to know him. We walk with him. We get to know him better. And he promises that as we walk with him, he conforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So what do we have to do while we're away? First, we have to come to know the master. Second, we must understand the master's business. And this came up in one of those songs that Zach was singing, which delighted me. How do we know the master's business? How do we know what we're supposed to be doing right now? We have hundreds of these in the church, I'm sure. Many of us have probably dozens of these in our homes. We have the Bible online. It's free everywhere. It's readable. You can listen to it. We have everything here. It's kind of like the lady wisdom in Proverbs cries out to everyone, don't be simple, be wise. None of this is hidden. None of this was done in a corner, as Paul said, in a different spot. We have what we need. And so what we need to do is we need to, um, we need to read the word. We need to understand the word. We need to teach each other the word. We need to understand what it is that God would have for each one of us. Um, of course, it says, make disciples of all the nations. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. But there's so many different individual things that each one of us is moms, dads, fathers, kids, workers, all sorts of things. There's a place where you have been put today, this week, where you can serve God in exactly how he's calling you. But here's the exciting thing, is that we as servants of Jesus Christ, we have this privilege of continuing the work that Jesus started. Okay, so this is not just a, this is what you're supposed to be doing right? Just like that servant took his master's resources and he was able to do the master's business with them. He was able to participate with his master to do it. That's what we have the um, ability to do. Think of all the thing that God, things that God promises uh, to do for his people. So many of those things are done through his people, right? That's the exciting thing. God rescues sinners through us. God comforts people through us. God encourages people through us. He teaches, the pe- teaches, teaches us the riches of his word through us. God creates little people through us. All of these things that God does, he does through his people. These are these, ta- these are, we get to take the resources that he's given us, and it's different for all of us, and we get to do God's work with him. Um, he does these things through us, and it's an exciting thing to do. And again, this is one of those things that as you start to step, and you you all know this, right? And you start to dip your toe in the water of serving God with his resources, being about his business, then you, you get, not only do you get a taste for it and your heart kind of wells up with that joy, but also as you do it and you're, you prove yourself to be faithful, even in little things, you're being able to give, given, you are given more responsibility. And again, it's not just like, oh man, I got more work to do. It's, can you believe it? Now I get to do this for God as well. So the point is, is it should be encouraging. But what has he given us? What resources has he given us? So, of course, first he's given us his spirit, um, who empowers us. um, But he also gives us gifts. Now, tell me, does this not sound like um, the master giving to us his servants gifts according to our abilities and according to his his will? In Romans 12, 6 to 8, it says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, right? Right? 
Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Right? There are all of these different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us according to his will, according to his pleasure, and we're supposed to take those and use them for our joy, for his glory. Of course he gives us material resources we have, various things. We have money, we may have homes, we may have, um, I don't know, all sorts of things. Time, energy, just where we are. We're members of this church, we're members of a company where we work, we're members of a neighborhood where we live. I don't know, but he's put you in certain places and given you certain um, resources um, and opportunities in that. And then the last part of this part is we've, um, we must know the master, we must know the master's business, and then we must pursue the master's business, right? So it's not enough just to know it, right? But we have to pursue that. And I love this church, and we've been here for a long time, but I love this church. I love all of you in this church. Um, I know many of you have been about the master's business for many years, and so I want you to be encouraged and continue to do so all the more. If you don't, I mean, if you're at the point where you think, well, I need to be a little bit more about the master's business, I wanted to give some kind of ideas for how we can kind of joyfully, eagerly, willingly, you know, pursue the, um, the goals, the objectives of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, we start with prayer. Um, you know, a great verse is Ephesians 2.10, which says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so God has prepared for us good works that we would walk in them. A lot of times I think we just miss those opportunities. We either literally just, they're over my head. I I just miss the opportunity, or maybe I sort of see it, but I kind of shrink back. But either way, pray that you would see the opportunity. Pray for the, uh, I don't know, the courage, the intestinal fortitude to like follow through on the opportunities uh, when they come up. But look, look for them around you. Don't just think like, hmm, where's that church ministry I can get involved with? Oh, that's a good thing, right? Look for those, but look close to home. We, like, again, we're put into certain families. We're put into certain situations where we have such an opportunity, for example, to be a peacemaker within our family. It could be our direct family where there's maybe a little bit of conflict. It could be extended family. I don't know. Uh, we, can, we can bring comfort. We can bring encouragement. We can bring a word of exhortation Um, anything like that. But look close to home. When God is talking about, um, when we, again, God comforts his people, he encourages his people, he disciplines his people, all of these things, we have the opportunity to do that with those just immediately in front of us. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be given more. Um, Train. Train yourself. If you feel like, I'm not competent to really understand the Word of God, I'm not able to do this or to do that, you can start training. And students especially, many of you have like free room and board right now, right? You have all the opportunity in the world to train yourselves in skills in, um, of course, in understanding the Word and that. But I mean, in all sorts of skills, it's an amazing thing. And I would encourage young people, ask older people, the grayer the hair, the better, ask, what are some skills, you know, that you've developed that you were surprised that God used later? It's an amazing thing, you know, things that I learned 30 years ago or just now becoming useful. Who knows? Use this time now, you know, be, be a faithful servant with the resources that God has given you, including a home and food and drink that you don't have to pay for, <laughs> right? And pursue um, skills. But I really want to encourage you to talk to someone. I am, you know, I've always been asked, especially when I was young, so, like in a job interview, where do you want to be in five years? 
I don't know where I want to be in five years. <laughs> what kind of question is that? I've never been goal-oriented. I don't know. I just want to do, a jo do my job. I've had a tough time answering that question. And if somebody were to say to me, well, go f make yourself useful. It's like, I don't know what to do. I kind of rely on somebody asking me to do something. But that being said, um, we do need to be productive. Like these first servants, he went away immediately. I'm not sure if he was a wise businessman and he had exactly the business plan ready. If, like, if I only had five talents, I knew what I would do with it. He might have had to go off and make up that business plan first. He might have had to use some creativity and some energy and some time to think, what could I do? What do these resources allow me to do? But my point is this, is if you don't know what to do, which would be, I can understand quite a bit, just talk to someone about these things. Say, man, I'd love to, um, I feel like I, I want to serve the Lord somehow, but I just don't have a vision for what that would be. And I would encourage all of us, talk to, talk to one another, and again, especially talk to the older, can I say older? Talk to the older people in, in our congregation and just learn about God's faithfulness over time. There's ways that God works that I wouldn't have understood 30 years ago, but I understand today, and I'm sure there's things that I still don't understand. So I really do want to encourage you, talk to one another, ask how God has been faithful, um, and then ask about how God has used different individuals that you're talking to for his glory to help other people. The last thing I want to mention here is, um, you know, we've, we've talked about um, you, you must know the master, we must know the master's business, we must pursue the master's business. But the last thing I want to mention is the criteria that the master uses. What was the criteria that the master used to determine the reward? What was the difference between the good and the wicked? Faithfulness. Yes, it was the faithfulness, right? So we're not called to be successful, right? This should be encouraging. We serve a gracious God. We serve a faithful God himself. He is not an exacting, a hard master. We're called to faithfulness, which, which just means that, that we, we, we understand the master's objectives and we just try to accomplish those objectives. We're not called a success as the world would define it. We're not called a success even how we, are, we maybe tend to think about it ourselves. We're not called to build a big church, but we are called to meet together regularly, to comfort one another, to teach one another, to pray for one another, to help one another. We're not called to have children that turn out pretty well. We're called to raise our children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. We're not called to demonstrate financial success. We are called to work faithfully and diligently and honestly. And you can fill in anything that you want, but the measure is not, wow, look at the profit you turned. I guess you're okay. Welcome into the joy of your master. It's well done, good and faithful servant. Even our faithfulness doesn't have to be um, perfect. Praise God. I had, when my kids were young, my oldest is now 22. When my kids were young, I had these intentions, right? I came to Christ at 23. We had our first son, and he's four or five years old, and I'm thinking, I'm going to, like, teach him the whole New Testament. It's going to be great. We're going to be, like, Christian buddies, you know? And all those years go by, and, of course, we raised our kids, but I didn't accomplish all of these great ideas that I thought I had when I was, you know, 25. But you know what? God has been way more faithful than I could have imagined. I stumble many times, and because if we, I mean, you know what it's like to work for a harsh boss? where it's like you're afraid to make a mistake, mistake, you're afraid to admit the mistake, and it's painful to just keep going because it won't be recognized anyway because you've already failed. But God is not that way. We get back up again knowing that he puts his arm around us and kind of gets us back out there on, on the field. So it's very encouraging to serve a master who is so good, so gracious, so faithful. So, in closing, in this parable... The Lord is calling us, his people, to be faithful about going about his business. 
He's been away for a long time, but that shouldn't discourage us or lull us into not doing anything. It should make us all the more eager now to pursue his business, knowing that, that anything that we accomplish, it's really due to his own grace. Um, but also, anything that we accomplish will be recognized and rewarded, even if it's imperfect, even if it's a little bit, right? But we are called to enter into the joy of the master. And as we do that, we get more and more opportunities to enter into more and more of that joy. Um, so it's really an encouraging thing. Be motivated to use your time and your resources um, to serve your master. And we know that the Lord will return. And as difficult as things may be now, as little as those efforts might be recognized now, he sees all, he knows all, and he recognizes all. And we can look forward to hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are gracious, and we trust you. It is a joy to be called members of your household. It's a joy just to be called a servant in your household, and yet you have given us so much more than that. You have called us to be your friend. You have called us to be sons and daughters um, through Jesus Christ, our elder brother who has gone before us and united us uh, to himself and to you. Father, we have mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. We have resources to do the will that you have for us. Father, Prepare our hearts to do that, would you please? Give us not just, not just a small desire, but a great desire to do your work for your glory, for your people, as we look forward to you returning. In Jesus' name, amen.